on WHMP. This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome back to the show the mayor of East Hampton because this is Monday and therefore it is Mayor's Monday on WHMP and Talk the Talk. We have with us Mayor Nicole LaChapelle. Mayor, I'd like to begin by reading you a bit of a letter in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette from someone in Amherst by the name of Joe Ellen Warner under the heading, Shocked by Mayoral Veto in East Hampton. Shame on East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle for vetoing Ordinance 6-23, the Safe and Fair Access to Legally Protected Reproductive and Gender-Affirming Health Care Services. The mayor has failed to provide bold action to protect Pioneer Valley residents from potential potentially dangerous pregnancy center practices, which the ordinance would have done. Uh, I think the letter writer means crisis pregnancy centers, um, and which she claims the ordinance would have done. And she goes on to describe pregnancy care centers as being, of course, uh, disingenuous, misleading, and uh, dangerous, and goes on to say, I can't help but wonder what goes on inside a pregnancy center when a client insists that she is going to get an abortion no matter what you say. And then says that the pregnancy, uh, the ordinance itself, 623, offered a way, I'm quoting now, to hold pregnancy centers accountable. What a shocking disappointment that the mayor has chosen to give them free reign. Well, I would like your response to that, including, if you would, uh, uh, pointing out why the letter is factually inaccurate. Mayor LaChapelle, your response, please. Yeah, I mean, the um, it's factually um, in, incorrect, one, uh, because of, of just how the writer um, describes services and whatnot that they are otherwise not covered. The ordinance at hand in East Hampton just duplicates what is already in place on the state level and is accessible on the state um AG's website to file such a complaint um, is very easily found. And as well, we encourage on a numerous occasions for our constituents to go to that website to file uh, complaints. I would also, um, in the midst of this very detailed and long conversation in East Hampton, which I welcome, I'm proud that we had the conversation. I didn't see a reason to duplicate state efforts when there are local actions we indeed have taken. But to have the conversation is something that actually Amherst chose not to do, where um, Ms. Warner is from. So it's it's curious. I would encourage her to uh, start that conversation in, in Amherst and see where it goes. I appreciate the comment about having the conversation. You vetoed the ordinance uh, you sent a detailed letter to the president of the city council explaining why you vetoed this ordinance. Could you summarize what's in that letter and tell us what your reasons are and were for vetoing the ordinance? I don't. I, in, in the letter I detailed, which is required under our charter for a mayoral uh, veto, um, saw that the uh, ordinance was performative, uh, as relating to what's already on the books and followed by state, uh, as well as an administrative burden on the city in uh, in an issue or on an issue that I don't see as local. I see it as state in the purview of, of state and federal. Federal has failed us, and uh, our governor and attorney general have stepped up. 
into the breach and issued advisories to municipalities, as well as providing a complaint form on the AG's website. Uh, and that was my, you know, the very quick uh, synopsis of uh, the reason for uh, my veto. I would, I would just like to point out that about 10 or 11 months ago, um, an ordinance, a version of this ordinance was introduced before it was introduced by the council. Uh, it was pretty clear that I had concerns um, with the ordinance, uh, not really in the wheelhouse of a municipality and wasn't going to put the city in the meal, middle of a very divisive um, issue to say the very least. And that there were actions our Board of Public Health and Department of Public Health, EMS, are taking uh, boots on the ground approaches to, to help our constituents as they're facing these issues. You note in the letter that the city solicitor uh, assured the city of the ordinance's legal merit, but you point out, as I believe the uh, city solicitor did as well, that the ordinance might well face legal challenges. I'm quoting from your letter to the president of the city council, Omar Gomez. We know it will face legal challenges by well-funded organizations intent on limiting the rights of women in the LGBTQIA plus community. We don't have to guess about that because we've already seen the discourse right here. It does not matter how frivolous. And you go on to say the state that the city would have to defend itself for replicating the efforts of the state and other sources referenced by members of the city council. Could you explain that a bit further, please, Mayor? We, we've seen um, in Connecticut and other parts of actually Massachusetts in the last year uh, with similar ordinances around uh, protection of uh, reproductive rights and crisis pregnancy centers, um, lawsuits that have been brought um, in Connecticut it was the Knights of Columbus, and in Massachusetts it was it was a pro obviously a pro life advocacy group um, saying that uh, the city had no right to do this, that it um, was constitutionally um, impermissible, and we know that regard there is there is a large agenda here on both sides. Um, I tend to to t- I I am pro choice in this, but pro life. Um, it is a way, it's a lightning rod for the pro-life movement to come into a city or town and really redirect attention and dollars from helping our residents um, find reproductive health care of their choosing that is based in science as well as gender-affirming care. Um, and that's what we do in East Hampton. That's what I believe municipalities should do. And I'm really, we're making... You know, if you want to talk about reproductive rights, you want to talk about gender-affirming care, um, my job as an executive in the city is to steer our finances, resources, and budgeting to those values and services that our residents have clearly indicated they want accessible. And that's what we're doing with the dollars. Um, You know, you can be sued you know, whether it is frivolous or not frivolous, a strong case, it's, it's not a choice the city can make. It can happen regardless of the strength of the law. Mayor Oshapel, I want to go to one other piece in the Gazette. This was on in this weekend's Gazette under the headline, a guest column, a reckless veto in East Hampton. Uh, this by Jennifer McKenna, who is uh, 
the founding, a founding member of Massachusetts Abortion Truth Campaign who lives in Northampton. And she says that the ordinance does two simple but important things. First, it has a safe access provision, which applies our state law locally, detailing how East Hampton employees and contractors must protect individuals seeking reproductive or gender-affirming care. And second, it has a fair access provision committing the city to educating community members. So the proponents of this ordinance saying it does two things, does it? I think it does what the state already um, with the state advisories and what the state expects of municipalities and municipal employees, it's already in place. I don't feel that writing a local ordinance that basically is the, the same as a state ordinance is a good use of municipal time or municipal employees. Our municipal employees are already mandated to, fo- already mandated to, fo- to follow the law, statute, regulations, and advisories of the state. Um, so I don't feel that there's any additional protection. It's a restatement of what we're what we do as municipal employees and municipal electeds. Um, perhaps this topic, this language as a resolution affirming state action and being a part of that state conversation, I think is a more worthwhile pursuit um, than it, putting it into a, an ordinance. And also, you know, just having another um, mandatory um, on a local level, a a mandatory uh, reporting structure that now becomes the supervisory responsibility of of the city um, as well as the state. It's it's a duplicative process. Well, uh, Mayor, this is Buzz, and uh, I think uh, you may have just answered my question because my question was, I, I'm old enough to remember when there was apartheid and municipalities throughout the country um, passed resolutions about their uh, opposition to apartheid or the war in Iraq or, or, or that resolutions are a way for legislative bodies to often um, make it clear that you talk about the values of the people in East Hampton, I think pretty overwhelmingly they're in support of women's reproductive rights, and they oppose um, these sort of uh, crisis pregnancy centers that we're talking about here. Do you think it's important that your council and you uh, pass a resolution that says this is how we feel? I mean, I was one of the first mayors when the Roe Act was before the legis- state legislature, um, went out there with then Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, uh, to speak to legislators, but also stand on the state house steps, uh, demanding its pack, um, its passing. I I put that forward in a resolution and um, gave draft language to the city council president at that time and asked him to put that before the council. The council indeed uh, did pass that, and I think it was a a true and pure reflection of the residents of East Hampton's values. Uh, that you know we have that in place. Uh, now and I'm very happy to, you know, say proud to be a part of that very early on coalition um, on the municipal level that supported the state take action, and indeed they did. I think we should point out that when Carrie Baker, who is a big proponent of this ordinance, was on our show last week, I raised this question with her, or Buzz raised it, I don't remember which one of us, uh, and said, why not do this as a resolution? And said, you could have done it as a resolution. That would have been a fine thing to do, but um, an ordinance is another way to do the same thing, um, which 
well, I'm not, I leave it to Carrie to speak for herself, of course. I certainly would ask our listeners to feel free to go listen to that podcast, which is posted on the WHMP website. Uh, and I'm wondering whether th- this pushback that you're getting, and there's lots of it, um, I think based on essentially misunderstanding of what the ordinance does or doesn't accomplish. Um, but there's a lot of pushback you're getting, it, and I'm wondering whether this is affecting you personally. Uh, how does it feel? It's, you know, it, it feels very awkward and contrary. Um, not only have I been pro-choice uh, my entire adult life, I've taken actions and financially supported uh, pro-choice um, organizations and participated in panels talking about the importance of pro-choice. Um, so to see um, or and to see and read uh, the comments um, and and the the slurs uh, slung at me uh, for really I feel taking the position of what the exec a municipal executive should do is to keep the line you know eyes on the prize of what a city. Um, should be doing and and also doing that in a way that the residents are constructing. So it is. It's it's a little stinging, um, you know. But we've seen a lot of um, introspective criticism um, on this issue. What is enough? What isn't enough? A lot of semantics back and forth. Um, but as a mayor, uh, boots on the ground and um, the board of health, I'm taking you know steps within the city government to really do genuine um, outreach on um, on literally the streets and in the in buildings and settings around East Hampton. Very proud of our Department of Public Health and the work that they've been been doing. But on a personal level, um, yeah, it's head spinning. It, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, sure, I, I have just so many things that, but when you are elected, um, while you have your opinions, um, you have a responsibility that you've a note that you've taken um, to follow uh, the Constitution of the United States and the state constitution, but also uh, the will of your residents. And I feel very strongly I've done that with the veto, and I feel very strongly I've done that as mayor um, since I was a, you know walked into office on January second, two thousand eighteen. Mayor. Can the Board of Health of the city of East Hampton post this information or links to this information without this ordinance? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, I had a, a conversation with Reproductive Equity now saying, you know, people send us emails or suggestions all the time of what should and should, you know, what they'd like to see on the website and to link out specifically around this issue um, we can put those links on on the website, no problem. Uh, as well, a link to uh, the Attorney General's Consumer Complaint uh, website. We are speaking with the Mayor of East Hampton, Nicole LaChapelle, on this Mayor's Monday. We'll be back more with the Mayor right after this. I did what I had to do Saw it through without exemption I planned each chartered course. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's new at the Waitley Inn? 
everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Your expectations. What are your expectations for your new home addition? Construct Associates in Northampton can show families just like yours a world of possibilities. From antique to ultra-modern, kitchen and bath, additions, design and construction, residential and commercial, renovation and restoration. Construct Associates in Northampton and your imagination. Expanded and released by serious craftsmen doing quality work. Visit their website right now at constructassociates.com. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles, or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were gonna buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation on this Mayor's Monday with the Mayor of East Hampton, Nicole LaChapelle. During the break, you had mentioned to us something uh, noteworthy, I think, about the website in East Hampton. Mayor, if you could share that with our listeners, I'd appreciate it. And then I want to get to the question that Buzz raised with you during the break as well. But first, the website. Yeah. Um, in a conversation last week with Rebecca Hart Holder of Reproductive Equity Now and putting information on the website, not needing an ordinance, um, she said, let me send you some links um, that have been vetted by their organization that, that have the most direct um, information of what people can do uh, to get good information about their options, um, but also kind of lay out what the concerns are around pre uh, pregnant, yeah, pregnancy crisis centers and um, using inaccurate or completely not medical, sound medical advice. Um, so I expect that email any day, and uh, that will form um, our information on the city webpage. Let me turn to Buzz's question. Buzz, you had a question for the mayor. Why I you do. Bring... Mayor LaChapelle, I've heard it okay. said by a couple of times now, that, that your veto is as much about your relationship with the council as it is substantively about crisis pregnancy center ordinances. What, what say you? I really disagree with that. And I think, um, I think there's a lot of fodder out there, and it certainly makes it more dramatic and pointed. Um, but, you know, if you at any given city council meeting at the end, I usually attend and, and go to them. Uh, you will find members of the city council and myself um, having nachos 
and a couple of beers at Amy's uh, talking about things not on city council agenda, uh, agenda, um, more about uh, mountain bikes or uh, what we're doing musically, you know, who's listening to what and how our families are. Um, I don't feel animosity towards uh, the council personally. Um, I just think that's one, a huge waste of space in my mind um, or anybody's mind, but also they are the legislative branch and they legislate and I'm the executive branch and it's for me to administer. Um, I don't begrudge them for this ordinance um, that, you know, the mudslinging and, and names calling is I think a little juvenile to say the very least. Um, But, you know, at any given time, I talk to uh, the council. Um, do I honestly really want to converse with a counselor who is, has thrown several slurs on social media po- posts? No. But if it's business-related, um, absolutely happy to do so. But otherwise, we're fine. Just had breakfast with Dan Rist, talked about the amazing 50th anniversary wedding anniversary party, and um, what our CPA forecasting looks like. That's Councillor Dan Rist, who is the longest serving member of the East Hampton City Council and will not actually be running for re-election next term. He's, he's uh, yeah. And I should note, I've only read of one city councillor who made those slurs uh, and derogatory mm-hmm. statements. So I, I, I think we can we leave it at one or I'll just leave, I'll yeah. just leave it there. Two, two friends of mine, too. <laughs> I don't keep track. But I think it's one. I think the beer part is really good. Beer after council meetings. That's a great idea. So let me ask, Uh, let me ask you, Mayor, turning to another topic. uh, We've suffered torrential rains, damages, devastation. Mm. What's happened in your city and what's your response? I mean, we are the last uh, count I heard. We were up to 45 acres of lost crops um, in East Hampton. Uh, very specifically, our potato crops, our root vegetables really took um, a strong hit, if not ruined for the year. Our, what is concerning, one, it's people's livelihoods. Um, two, it's people's food. You know, the amount of food produced by East Hampton farmers for the East Hampton Community Center, Western Mass Food Bank, um, and other charitable organizations is significant, it is significant, as well as um, you know, Mountain View Farm has um, sliding, a sliding scale for farm shares so people of all income levels um, can enjoy fresh produce and they're going to do their best they can by the shareholders, but um, it doesn't, you know, it, it, it's not, you know, going to be the robust shares um, that has been in the past. And, and then there's long term. I mean, the other, you know, immediate is its job. Um, we have migrant undocumented um, farm workers now without employment that they expected for the season, um, as well as several um, residents of East Hampton who work or volunteer at the farms, concerns about the quality of what's going on with the soil, the root systems, mold. Um, but it is, it is breathtaking to go um, to Mountain View Farm or to Fort Hill Road or to the Oxbow um, and see the different, it's a different landscape. 
you know, I took a picture of the flooding on, on Fort Hill Road and I sent it to a friend um, and I said, oh, this is our new pond. And uh, she's kind of familiar with East Hampton. And she's like, wow, that's not the center of town. Where is that? And then I, I had a picture of when it was cornfields. Um, it looks like a different place and not in the not in the positive. And the depth of the water um, is re- it, it's deep. It's, this is not one or two feet. We're talking about roads closed and they have had five feet. Um, the river road that goes down to the river itself and has some houses down there, Rod and Gun Club totally devastated people are canoeing in and out um i've heard very similar things about uh hadley other communities down in chicopee and um the pictures of vermont are are horrific um and while this is shocking i it is not surprising um climate change you know how many times do we say it's real but now it's food out of folks stomach and also money out of, of people's paycheck or no paycheck at all. There's been a lot of coverage in the Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Greenfield Recorder, and on other local media, including the station, about state uh, and federal officials, high elected officials, mm-hmm. Senator Warren, Congressman McGovern, uh, state uh, agriculture uh, commissioners. Uh, many people mm-hmm. have visited Western Massachusetts, and there are promises of aid. I'm wondering whether you have seen or heard or read or had communicated to you uh, any of the promises to help out local farmers? Um, I've spoken with um, uh, MEMA, the second in charge of MEMA, as well as um, Congressman Neal's office that sent um, uh, my office an email with existing programs with the USDA while it's, you know, emergency funding and declarations are being figured out. Um, I've been very impressed, and also my constituents who are in, who are affected by this flood, have been very impressed by the the direct um, uh, outreach by state officials. Also, you can remember the Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources. Um, their uh, their head is actually from South Deerfield, and uh, she's been out serving the damage. That's going to happen, start happening in earnest today. And and I think we'll see more pointed funds. Um, But I've been really impressed by the information that we've gotten in my office to let farmers know, those affected by the flood, these are the programs in place right now um, on a federal level that you can take a look at, reach out to, you know, your member of Congress or uh, office for more details or help filling out any forms or, or whatnot and getting those ready while um, MEMA and FEMA are doing their damage assessment. Mayor, last question on this, if I might. Is this damage uh, going to affect the availability of fresh produce in East Hampton and in the area this summer and fall? Oh, yeah. Yes. Dramatically. Dramatically, there were already going to be some issues with different crops just because of water and the heat in the beginning of the summer. But this this now takes that, you know, I guess no pun intended, off the table. Um, you know, there I can't imagine the prices prices are going to go up, but also just availability, just not being available. Um, I talked to River Valley Market um, in East Hampton. They were talking about, you know. We can source, you know, they can source from other places and get, you know, produce 
you know, on their shelves, but at a different cost. And, you know, their model on both sides of, um, you know, local food and our local food chain is to, to buy local, to do that very purposely, to contract for that um, so folks can depend on a robust agricultural economy and top quality food grown by your neighbors. And that's just going to be a very rare, um, a rare um, occurrence this growing season. And um, I am very concerned about next. I, you know, I mean, right now we're very much in a crisis go-go state. Um, but what are the long-term repercussions to the soil um, and different crops? And will there be changes? Uh, what, what the soil will need to get back to where it was. We need to leave it there. We've been speaking with Mayor Nicole LaChapelle, the mayor of East Hampton, on this Mayor's Monday on WHMP and Talk the Talk. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Stone Soup Farm in Hadley is suffering significant damages from the flooding. Eight acres of vegetables that were intended for the community-supported agriculture summer shares will have to be plowed under after being deluged by the rain from the Connecticut River this week. Owner Dave DeLorenzo tells the Gazette that thousands of pounds of various vegetables and 30,000 heads of garlic were destroyed. DeLorenzo plans to put together a GoFundMe page to help with the damage. A link to other farms with GoFundMe pages already set up can be found at whmp.com. The owner of Brunel's Marina has died. 61-year-old Luke Brunel passed away on Thursday. Brunel's Marina was started in 1959 by Brunel's father and grandfather. The family released a statement saying Brunel was respected and admired for his dedication to exceptional service and fostering a welcoming environment for boating enthusiasts. The cause of death was not disclosed. Multiple crews were sent to Brattleboro Road in Bernardston on Friday for a single-vehicle rollover crash. The accident occurred at approximately 10.30 p.m. A person was trapped in the vehicle that hit a utility pole on Brattleboro Road, Route 5, at Keatsbrook Road near the Vermont border. The driver was found in the rear of the vehicle and sent to a local hospital for injuries. A Bernardston police officer was also cut on glass while removing the driver from the vehicle. Bernardston police are investigating the accident and criminal charges are likely. Becoming mostly sunny today, warm and humid, a high of 88 to 92. Variable clouds tonight. Evening temperatures will be in the low 80s, an overnight low of 66 to 72. Sun cloud mix tomorrow. Watch out. More showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon, a high of 84 to 88. Dry mid-80s on Wednesday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rachivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El Departamento de Justicia instó a un juez el jueves a rechazar los intentos de Donald Trump de posponer su juicio por documentos clasificados, diciendo que no había fundamento para una demora abierta solicitada por sus abogados. Los fiscales federales propusieron el mes pasado un juicio el 11 de diciembre para Trump, quien está acusado de 37 delitos graves relacionados con el mal manejo de documentos clasificados en su propiedad de Mar-a-Lago, aunque la fecha real dependerá del juez. Los abogados de Trump respondieron esta semana con 
con una solicitud de postergación. No propusieron una fecha específica, pero dijeron que el caso se refería a cuestiones legales novedosas y que proceder con un juicio dentro de los seis meses es irrazonable y resultaría en un error judicial. El jueves, los fiscales del equipo fiscal especial de Jack Smith respondieron pidiéndole a la jueza federal de distrito, Eileen Cannon, que no pospusiera el juicio más allá de la fecha de diciembre que recomendaron. En otras informaciones, la Agencia contra el Cáncer de la Organización Mundial de la Salud ha considerado que el endulzante aspartame, que se encuentra en las bebidas gaseosas dietéticas e innumerables otros alimentos, es una posible causa de cáncer, mientras que un grupo de expertos separado que analizó la misma evidencia dijo que todavía considera que el sustituto del azúcar es seguro en cantidades limitadas. Los diferentes resultados de las revisiones coordinadas se publicaron el viernes temprano. El aspartame se une a una categoría con más de otros 300 posibles agentes causantes de cáncer. Sin embargo, la guía sobre el uso del endulzante no está cambiando. El aspartame es un endulzante artificial bajo en calorías que es unas 200 veces más dulce que el azúcar. Es un polvo blanco e inodoro y el edulcolorante artificial más utilizado en el mundo. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. I'm a believer. Well, I'm not tr quite sure that's true for our next guest. Uh, uh, our guest, uh, I think you're from somewhere in the central time zone, um, is the creator, the founder, about 50 years, almost 50 years ago, of uh, just one little preposition makes a big difference. Freedom from religion foundation, <laughs> as opposed to what we customarily are talking about, freedom of religion. And she is the co-creator. I think that she's the co-president. Annie Laurie Gaylor, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, I guess the question, I think you did it with your mother. I think you were a college student. But why did you and your mother co-create the Freedom From Religion Foundation? Well, we saw that there was the moral majority was starting. Jerry Falwell, there was a big promotion of the myth that this is a Christian nation going on. And we thought that we would uh, be able to correct this misperception in a few years. Uh, but there was actually a backstory in the reason that we got so concerned about keeping religious dogma, religion out of government was my mother's early work as an abortion rights advocate uh, on a, both, both a national and at, at the state level, Wisconsin level, uh, crusader for legalizing abortion rights. And we saw very clearly that the only organized opposition to abortion rights was religious in nature. And we would see the busted nuns and priests and school children filling our rotunda and all the arguments had to do with the Bible and God. And of course, we saw the overturning of those laws. And now here in Wisconsin, we're right back to square one with an abortion ban dating to 1849. Uh, controlling things here and uh, there's some improvement there was just a court decision uh, saying that ban was not really a ban but we are still sitting here in the state with no um, legal abortion as is about about 20 states so that core issue for us is still remains a core issue 
but it could have been some other issue. It could have been creationism or gay rights. But for us, it was becoming aware that uh, religion should have nothing to do with our civil laws pertaining to women and reproductive rights. Um, and of course, we now see an upswing of the Christian nationalism that we were starting to see in 1976, uh, seizing um, control of a lot of politicians and state legislatures. So the uh, issues are even more pressing today, I think, than they were when we founded FFRF. Well, I guess about four out of five people, according to a Pew poll, which is now dated, admittedly, I think it was from 2010, but it lists uh, over four out of five people on the globe identify, self-identify as a member of a religion. Um, here in the United States, it's in excess of two out of three people. It might be higher than that. I'm not quite sure um, because we don't have, even if we did have a survey, we might not find it reliable. But um, so you want to talk about non-theism. That is, a lot of people consider themselves an atheist or an agnostic. Um, you talk about non-theism on your website, and you've written about it. What is non-theism, and why do you advocate it? Well, I would say that actually uh, probably the majority of our 40,000 members identify as atheists, but some are agnostics. Non-theism just means without a belief in a god. We like to promote the term free thinker, which if you look it up in the dictionary actually has the right definition. You know, you look up uh, atheist and sometimes it's, it's a very pejorative definition. Freethinker means somebody who forms their opinion about reason, about religion, based on reason rather than faith, tradition, or authority. In other words, we shouldn't turn off our brains when we're analyzing the claims of religion any more than we do with anything else. That um, that we should um, subject everything to uh, reason. Is it the claims of religion? Are they true? And uh, most of our members believe there is no evidence for a deity and that it gets in the way of society, um, gets in the way of improving society. In fact, the, you know, the only afterlife that really ought to concern any of us is leaving our descendants and planet a secure and pleasant future. There's no evidence of an afterlife. It seems highly unlikely and improbable, and yet people are brainwashed or proselytized to think that that's the most important part of their existence here on earth. So we believe in one world at a time. And we believe that religion in government in particular is a real barrier to um, a more uh, humane uh, planet and social policies. So, <clears throat> excuse me, Annie Laura Gaylor, <clears throat> co-founder and co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, what I want to know <clears throat> is what you think about the ad, the television ad that I've seen many times now. It's actually most of what I knew about uh, the Freedom From Religion Foundation. It's the ad by Ron Reagan Jr. Uh, who talks about a, a number of things regarding religion and ends it with saying, this is Ron Reagan Jr. and not afraid of burning in hell, which seems to me to be uh, pretty direct uh, not pretty, a direct kind of uh, confrontation with people who do uh, have religious beliefs. And I'm wondering whether you think this is a good message and an accurate message on behalf of your organization, the Freedom From Religion Foundation. 
We certainly are very grateful to Ron Reagan, who does not like to say junior at the end of his name, but he is the son of the president, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan, and a very outspoken atheist his whole life. And he recorded that commercial for us and has been so generous um, to lend his name and support. And he um, improvised that when the commercial it was 30 seconds ran a little short. He's the one who put in the personality, calling himself an unabashed atheist not afraid of burning in hell. And for some reason that has really been considered controversial when that was recorded in 20, uh, 2014. We had intended it to run on 60 minutes and they refused it. Um, and it was even refused by um, MSNBC, NBC, ABC, CBS. Comedy, Comedy Central was willing to run it, but Discovery wouldn't run it. And uh, NBC had said, well, if you chop off that last bit, not afraid of burning in hell, we'll run it. Well, that's the humor. That's the tagline. And what has always struck me is that people who believe in a hell, if they believe if you are not saved by Jesus or whoever they believe in, you will be punished eternally, tortured eternally. They go. The Bible goes into the, the writhing and pain, and it's, it's a terrible notion to say that if you don't agree with me on something I can't even prove theologically, that you will be damned forever and tortured forever and burned forever. I think that is a socially unacceptable concept, not his lighthearted saying, I'm an atheist and I don't believe in your hell, therefore I'm not gonna believe, I'm not gonna burn in your hell. Uh, I think that that is a very appropriate reaction to this concept of damning people who don't believe the same as you. You know, Dar Darwin and others have said they thought that the idea of damnation is a damnable doctrine. And it is. It should not be considered socially acceptable. Well, I'd like to ask you about socially and politically acceptable because the evangelical Christian movement in the country is very large and very significant politically and may determine the Iowa caucuses, among other things, coming up soon. Uh, the Freedom From Religion Foundation is, by comparison, quite small, and I'm wondering how you see the comparison in political power between those who are very, very uh, invested in their fundamentalist beliefs and those who believe in something else. Well, that's a good question, and I would point out that although the number of people who identify as atheist agnostics is, is still rather small, the growth of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, has been a huge item for pollsters for a decade or more because the, not, the religiously unaffiliated are the fastest growing segment of the population by religious identification as the uh, uh, Christianity is now at a new low at 65%. Uh, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, are now 29% of the adult population, that is almost three in 10. And there are statistics showing that of the Generation Z, those born after 1999, as many as 47% have no religion. Now they don't all say they don't believe in a God, but they, have, they, they check atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular when they are being asked, and this is, uh, PRRI, Pew, uh, all of these polls are showing the same huge change of perspective in our society. 
And that is a huge number of people, and that's a huge voting block, and that is larger than the uh, core white Protestant evangelicals who make up the Christian nationalists. And if we flex our muscles and we get to the polls and vote, um, the nuns are, uh, 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 can um, chime in more disproportionately, actually. And uh, this is, you know, AP did a study after the 2022 polls that showed that the nuns and the atheist vote were uh, uh, game changers in some states. So we, the, the issue here, though, is that there are a higher percentage of religiously unaffiliated who are young people. Getting them to engage and vote would be, is, is the real issue, because among the 40,000 plus members of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, 99% of our members are registered voters. They tend to be older, and there's no question that they vote, that we vote. So uh, it, it's, uh, as we've talked with um, pollsters and people who are writing books about this, they all agree it's a face-off between the religiously unaffiliated and the white Protestant evangelicals. So we have a great deal of pull. We are just not being courted by politicians and candidates. They have not uh, caught up with the changing demographics in our country. Well, and we are that, intending to make sure they do. I guess that's where I was going with my, my question. I, those evangelicals that, that um, uh, we are talking about, they have their, uh, their um, what's the right word? Their soapbox. And they, their values, their ideologies, every Sunday morning, are proclaimed the same is true for a whole lot of progressive uh, ministers. We on this show have a number of people who come, and I suspect that their political ideologies would be consistent with uh, many of yours, Annie uh, Laurie Gaylor, and they use their soapbox to promote what I think are progressive values that um, are, are laudable. Um, how do you get your message across to those voters that Bill was asking you about in a minute or two before we take a break? We have, uh, Freedom from Religion Foundation does have our own media. We have our own weekly radio show ourselves, Free Thought Radio. We have a TV show, it's on hiatus in the summer, Free Thought Matters, that's um, airing Sunday mornings and could be viewable by up to 27% of the population. Um, it's not in Boston, but it's in New York City, for example, uh, also on YouTube. Um, we have our own newspaper, and, and we're just one of a secular coalition. Secular Coalition for America exists. There are many secular groups out there, many bloggers, many um, YouTubers, social media. They're all using it. Uh, and we're here, and uh, we intend to have our secular values heard because we support the secular constitution. Um, we were the first among nations to adopt a godless secular constitution whose only references to religion are exclusionary, such as that there should be no religious test for public office. It was first not to give sovereignty to a divinity, but to we the people. And this is what we support. And we think that's very pro-American, very patriotic. There we go. We're going to take a break. Um, we'll be right back right after this.
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside, get a beach read, like Happy Place by Emily Henry, Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads for the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice, and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. Everyone loves a clean house, but between our jobs and our families, who has time to keep the house clean? Hi, I'm Amy Love from Green Love Eco Cleaning, and I'd love the opportunity to put my team of eco-friendly cleaners to work in your home or business. At Green Love Eco Cleaning, we use our signature line of non-toxic aromatherapy cleaning solutions to keep your home or office clean while promoting greener, healthier lifestyle options for you and your family. To find out more about the services we provide, check out our website at greenloveclean.com. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. As the weather gets warmer, I know many of you are thinking about your summer workout schedule. And if you're like me, it's all about finding work, life, and workout balance, which is why when you sign up at Fitness Together, you'll put a schedule together with your personal trainer that actually works for you, is stress-free, and will help you stay fit, healthy, and balanced. Visit us online today at fitnesstogether.com, Amherst, or Northampton, and sign up for your free consultation. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are very pleased to have uh, Annie Laurie Gaylor, the co-president and co-founder of the Freedom from Religion Foundation. Uh, Annie Laurie, there are a lot of, uh, there's litigation that Freedom from Religion Foundation is engaged in. We don't have much time, but could you just outline for us uh, what sorts of litigation you're involved in and what the issues are? Sure. We, we've taken almost 100 lawsuits since our inception. We've won many victories to keep religion out of government. Um, we are working with a coalition right now to sue over the uh, terrible uh, development of a Catholic charter school in Oklahoma, um, which is uh, the brainchild of Notre Dame Law School and the Tulsa Diocese and the Archdiocese of Oklahoma. And that would be where the public would be forced to completely support a religiously segregated um, pro, you know, Catholic school. And it would spread around the country. So that's one thing we're preparing for. We were ready to sue over the proposed Ten Commandments in classrooms in Texas. The clock ran out on that. We have uh, several lawsuits ongoing. We are suing over Ten Commandments in front of the Arkansas Capitol, for example. Um, um, uh, a whole bunch of different kinds of lawsuits. And we also try to end state church violations through education and persuasion. So we have a team of about 10 attorneys and we write letters of complaint trying to to get violations uh, corrected and have a very good batting average. A lot of them are in the public schools. Well, we are, but the court unfortunately, we're running out of time. So I wanted to ask, how do people find out more about what you're doing, including your litigations, 
and about your organization and membership? Well, our website is FFRF.org, and you can go there. And I'm there's sorry, say that more slowly. FFRF.org or Google Freedom from Religion Foundation. There's an Ask for Info uh, link, and we'd be glad to send you a copy of our newspaper, Free Thought Today, and a brochure about our 45-plus years of achievements. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Annie Laurie Gaylor uh, of the uh, Freedom From Religion Foundation, FFRF.org. And uh, meanwhile, thank you all for joining us today on Talk the Talk. Remember, we all try to walk the walk. This is Talk the Talk. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we welcome to our show Wendy Parmet, who is a professor of law at Northeastern University School of Law. The professor teaches health law and disability law, bioethics, and constitutional law as well. She is the director, the faculty director of the Center for Health Policy and Law at Northeastern University School of Law, and she has a new book, Constitutional Contagion, COVID, the Courts, and Public Health. Constitutional Contagion, COVID, the Courts, and Public Health. Uh, Professor, would you be kind enough to explain the title for us? Constitutional Contagion, what does that mean and why is the book titled that? Thank you and good morning. Um, Appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Constitutional Contagion, um, the title refers to different ways, the multiple ways that constitutional law um, responds to contagion, such as COVID-19, perpetuates contagion and underestimates or misperceives the role of contagion in society at multiple levels. So it's really about how constitutional law has left us vulnerable to COVID, um, exacerbated COVID, and fails to appreciate the way our fates are interconnected. Well, take us back to the founding of the country. We hear a lot from the Supreme Court about originalism and uh, original intent of the founders. Were they at all concerned about contagion? Uh, Or is this something that the founders, well, didn't concern themselves with 
<clears throat> and therefore the Constitution, well, does or doesn't address it. So the founding generation was deeply concerned with contagion. It was pervasive in their lives. Epidemics came frequently. They took un to us unimaginable tolls. In, in 1793, a um, epidemic of yellow fever just completely devastated the city of Philadelphia, which was then the capital. Contagion epidemics were a major part of life and cause of death in the 18th century. The Constitution itself did not explicitly address contagion or health, but at the time, it's really important to understand first that states um, Diddle and cities and, and counties um, reacted continuously to contagion. You know, we like to think, I think, that once upon a time back in the founding generation, we had fewer laws and people were, you know, at liberty. But in fact, there were all kinds of laws designed to address contagion. Some sensible, many from modern perspectives foolish, because obviously the science understanding of contagion was very limited at the time. But the legal regulation designed to prevent contagion was a absolutely ubiquitous feature of life in the 18th century and early 19th century and was assumed by the founding generation to be totally compatible with the Constitution. Okay, well, I'm a little confused now. If the founders of the country in that generation were so concerned about contagion when writing and the major cause of death for them and their loved ones, why is it that the Constitution doesn't directly address it? And I guess more importantly, in some ways, does the Constitution indirectly address health and safety and medicine? Sure. Well, I think to understand why the Constitution doesn't address it, it's important to think about federalism and think about what the Constitution was doing. What the Constitution was doing was providing a framework, a Constitution, of government for the federal government and clarifying its relationship with the states. It wasn't um, explicating what has become known as the police powers, the domestic laws of the states, which, which have long been identified and were identified during that period with laws designed to protect health and safety. So the, the Constitution didn't deal with health laws because the assumption was that the states were dealing with health laws. Now, obviously, one thing that has changed since then is our greater recognition that um, health issues cannot be managed well solely at the local and state level. But the Constitution was not, the federal government was not created to deal with health laws. It was created to create a compact between the states and to also deal with um, a wide range of issues that were assumed to be compatible with health laws. We are speaking with Wendy Parma. She is a 
constitutional law professor and professor of health law and disability law and bioethics at Northeastern University School of Law. Her new book is titled Constitutional Contagion, COVID, the Courts, and Public Health. She is the faculty director of the Center for Health Policy and Law at Northeastern University School of Law. Back to the title, if we might, Professor. Help us out. COVID, the courts, and public health. How did the courts do? What did they do, and how did they fare with regard to addressing the COVID-19 crisis in this country? Well, I think what's critical to emphasize is how dramatically different the courts responded to the COVID-19 pandemic than to earlier health pandemics. And really what led me to begin to write this book was that dramatic departure. Um, For centuries, courts were deferential, sometimes too deferential perhaps, to government efforts to contain contagion, fight epidemics. And what we saw in COVID particularly after Justice Barrett joined the Supreme Court, was a real flip. And we've actually gone from deference to deep skepticism in the courts about public health laws, making it much harder for the government to protect public health than had previously been the case. So there really was a dramatic shift. That said, I want to say, I mean, many public health laws, in fact, most judicial decisions issued during the pandemic about the scope of public health laws did affirm the laws, but there were some really dramatic changes starting actually in November, Thanksgiving Eve uh, 2020, and that's where my book starts on Thanksgiving Eve 2020 when the Supreme Court issued a decision that really just upended centuries of precedent. Okay, what did the court do? You say upended centuries of precedent, something that we are hearing on a disturbing, disturbingly regular basis from the Supreme Court. What was the law? What is it now? What did this court do to change public health law? And how did it affect the ability of governments to address and uh, uh, provide uh, antidotes for uh, their, their constituents and the people? Sure. So the first thing the court did and the thing the court did in November 2020 was block a New York law that that attempted to limit the number of people who could gather for religious services in what were then called COVID hot zones. Interestingly, Importantly, there were at the time. Nevertheless, the court said that New York couldn't have this law in place. In reaching that decision, what's important is not so much the holding, but it's the way the court reached the decision. Because the court gave absolutely zero weight or consideration to the public health evidence. The fact that the state had evidence that religious gatherings, and this is in the surge of 2020 that came in the fall, that religious gatherings had served as so-called super spreader events, that putting a lot of people together in um, indoor settings where they were chanting, singing, that this could be very dangerous. The evidence the court cared not at all about. And so what we saw in that case was called Roman Catholic Diocese versus Cuomo was a real change from deference 
to health authorities to indifference to health effects in the name of religious liberty. And that is a theme that continued throughout the pandemic as the court increasingly protected the rights of people who wanted to rely on religious beliefs to opt out of health laws. But that's not the only change we saw, but that change marked, that case marked the beginning of a very different jurisprudential approach to public health. Well, Professor, I saw that case as being this Supreme Court's making absolutely clear that religion, particularly uh, Christian religion, uh, in a case before the court where their practice of religion is being uh, infringed upon, uh, they win and public health loses because compared to religious freedom and the majoritarian religion in this country, that they win, everything else is uh, much less important to this Supreme Court. Uh, and I think you're telling us that although this was a uh, initial decision by the court, that it expanded from its will protect Christianity at all costs to, well, we won't pay attention to public health hardly at all. Is that accurate? I think that's accurate. I mean, there's no doubt that Roman Catholic Diocese versus Cuomo and subsequent cases that I discuss in the book are in part about the court's changing approach to increasing solicitude to claims for religious liberty, particularly brought by conservative Christians. I don't question that, you're right on. Um, but there's also another theme, which is the decreasing interest in public health, a lack of consideration of science, which we see, you know, so it's not just the religious liberty cases. We could also look at the cases about, and I do, about executive power and the ability of the federal government, for example, to mandate vaccines, the court, and not a religious liberty case, said that OSHA could not require either vaccination or um, testing and masking by in large employment settings. So there's a wide range really crossing the spectrum where the court increasingly seems disinterested in public health protection and in science. And I guess that, that leads me, this is Buzz, uh, Professor Parmit. Um, in terms of the constitutional c contagion, I know the focus is the courts, but I'd like to just zoom out a little bit and look at an even bigger picture because when I was in law school, one of the first things we came to understand is this tension between individualism and collectively solving our problems. And so many people who resented it being told, they said it was infringement on their freedom to have to wear a mask or to not be able to go to a religious uh, gathering, et cetera, et cetera. I'd really like to hear your thoughts about the sort of backdrop behind what the courts did or didn't do during this public health emergency, which is that tension between individualism and collectivism. Sure. So it's it's an you know as you're suggesting it's an enduring tension, um, and you know I personally believe that the courts do have a role, an important role to play in protecting individual liberty. And one of the things I talk about in my book are the times the courts and you know, didn't step in and protect it. But I but I see this as a spectrum. And I one of the things I talk about in the book is um, the need for a fuller 
understanding of liberty because I have a liberty not to wear a mask, but I also have a liberty not to be sick by somebody else, right? Liberty is complicated. Liberty is multifaceted and that's one of the stories of contagion and it, you know, when contagion strikes, when epidemics destroy communities, um, there's no liberty, right? We don't have a, so one of the things the court has done in recent years is privilege one conception of liberty to the detriment of other understandings of liberty. And as I stress in the book, that was not in our constitutional tradition. This is new and it has consequences. And it also, I just want to add, affects how average Americans think of their liberties. The courts help to, um, they reflect, but they also help to teach what are our rights? People assume and think that our rights are what the courts say our rights are. And so as the courts espouse a particularly narrow and one-sided version of liberty, that becomes the version of liberty that Americans believe. But it's not our, the traditional version of liberty. We are speaking with Wendy Parmich. She's a professor of law at Northeastern University School of Law. She teaches health law and disability law, bioethics and con law, constitutional law as well. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, talk about this statement from the introduction. Constitutional law has helped make Americans unhealthy. We'll be right back. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You want to feel important. You want to be part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you. But our part-time service in the Army National Guard means we get to be more. When our communities are in need, we get the chance to stand up and do something about it. We get to serve in our own region and help the people we call neighbors. From the coasts of Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. The small communities of Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. To the dense forest of New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York, and historic Washington, D.C. We are here for our hometowns. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this station. 
you're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with law professor Wendy Parmet. She is a professor of law at Northeastern University School of Law in Boston, where she teaches health law, disability law, and bioethics, and constitutional law as well. Her new book is Constitutional Contagion, COVID, the Courts, and Public Health. On our show, professor, we have talked many times with many experts, lawyers, and professors about the way in which this court has invented and I cannot put that strongly enough, but has invented new doctrines, new legal theories to get to results that it wants. One of those, one of those doctrines that is going to have and, and has already had enormous effect on many aspects of American life is something that I hope will not have our uh, listeners' eyes glaze over because it is so very important, and that is this major question doctrine, something this Supreme Court made up uh, and if then imposed on, for example, environmental regulation uh, or attempts to regulate the environment and to keep us safe and healthy. The major question doctrine, for our lay listeners, could you explain what it is and how it is going to affect our health now and in the future. Please, Professor. Sure. sure. So this is a doctrine that, you know, had some roots as doctrines do before um, 2021 level in 2021. And it's a theory that says when an administrative agency, federal administrative agency, regulates a uh, major question, it cannot do so. Unless Congress has explicitly touched, granted it the authority it seeks. Professor, you're breaking up a little bit, so stay close to your mic. Let me just repeat what you said. The major question doctrine that the Supreme Court articulated created this highly conservative, that's a generous description, uh, court created that said if Congress went about giving authority to administrative agencies in the ways that is done for decades and decades and decades and decades and decades when they and wrote the law accordingly because that was fine with the law at the time but if the the congress did not say specifically for what this court on its own will decide on its own what's an important question if congress didn't say yes you administrative agency have the authority to decide that question and regulate it if the congress didn't do that according to what this Supreme Court on its own with no guardrails will decide as a major question, then that's unconstitutional because it's an unconstitutional delegation of authority. It's a major question. Congress did not give that authority to the agency. It's completely invented. It's totally fabricated. It wasn't the law, but now it is the law. How is it going to affect public health? Dramatically, dramatically. And I'll give you two reasons why. First, 
the court is already, in fact, the court invented it in, in COVID public health cases. The real sort of formalization of this doctrine came in a case striking down CDC's authority to impose a eviction moratorium. It's been used in other health cases. It's been used to prevent CDC from, imply, from requiring masking on airplanes. It's been used to prevent OSHA from uh, requiring vaccines or testing during the pandemic. Public health laws almost always have these broad catch-all phrases where it enables the authorities to take such other measures as they reasonably believe are necessary to protect health. And now what the courts are saying is that catch-all phrase kind of doesn't exist, right? You can't use your science. You can't respond to new threats based on new science because Congress didn't explicate with specificity. That's the first way. The second way, let's talk about it, go a step beyond, you know, cases about COVID. Think about how the court has used this to rein in the EPA. It's making it very difficult to address climate change. Talk about dramatic health impacts in the coming years. We're seeing it this summer. Climate change is a major threat to health and the court is hobbling regulators ability to address climate change. So this doctrine, this made up doctrine, as you so correctly said, is a dramatic, dramatic threat to the public's health in the future. What I find most, not most disturbing, but one aspect of this really disturbing is that Congress would write laws that said, Environmental Protection Agency, you may do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, and other things that are like this. And the Supreme Court law and statutory interpretation was, and we know what that last phrase means because we have the examples of all the other things that came before that. And the Supreme Court said, the fact that you relied on the law as it was at that time doesn't count anymore because we have created this major question doctrine and it now applies retroactively to laws that have been in effect for decades it would be preposterous if a first-year law student had invented that. You would have failed. Well, you're a nice person. You may not have failed them, but you would have de <laughs> definitely would have had some things to say about that. And yet this Supreme Court can just get away with it. And I'd appreciate your perspective on that. No, I think the major question is doctrine is a major threat um, to health. And yes, many of the cases, not just the Supreme Court that we're now seeing in the lower courts applying the doctrine are just mind boggling. Um, courts have said that the president doesn't have the authority under the major questions doctrine to require Head Start teachers to be vaccinated in the middle of a pandemic. Huh? Right? I mean, any the problem is what's a major question? anything that the court wants to call a major question and anything one of the criteria they mentioned is it's controversial so if some industry or some group want to contest a question it becomes a major question and the administrative agency can't regulate it it completely hobbles health officials and is totally made up. This is not our tradition as I show in the book. This is not what courts were doing for the first 220 years of our republic. Other than change the faces of the people who sit on the Supreme Court, what do you, Professor Wendy Parmet, uh, think should be done before the next pandemic to minimize the threat to our health? At the state level, there are lots of things that can be done. Um, states 
need to look at their laws. They need, I, I'm hopeful that some states will reform laws. I'm working with a group where look doing something called bright spots. A lot of states are cutting back their public health laws, but others are reforming them sensibly. We need to empower officials, but also put important guardrails. At the federal level, obviously right now with the gridlock in Congress and divided government, it's very difficult to see, to be optimistic, but I do think that the legal culture needs to change. I think we need to keep talking about it. I think we need to keep holding the court, you know, the fire to the feet of this court. I do think we've seen a few signs this year of some moderation. The court has been a little less um, willing to just go gangbusters and overrule everything. Obviously they did the last week of the term, but throughout the term, a little bit more caution than we saw in the last two years. Um, so we gotta keep holding their feet to the fire and we gotta keep talking about it. And we have to keep showing why um, the kinds of decisions they've been issuing are neither, are both dramatic departures from our constitutional provision uh, tradition and are not required to preserve the liberty of Americans. In fact, they threaten the liberty of Americans. Professor Parmet, we have to leave in about a minute, but I would love to ask you this question, and it's something you just alluded to, and that is with regard to industries, uh, polluters, the pharmaceutical industry. If I heard you correctly, and I think I did. If an industry says, oh, no, that's a big problem. That's a problem. We're opposed to it. And they have lots of ads and they go out on a uh, big political campaign. Then it's controversial. And if it's controversial, then it's a major question. And if it's a major question and Congress didn't specifically address it, then it's illegal. And so industry has now been empowered to essentially regulate itself to a large degree. Is that an overstatement? Only slightly. I mean, the only caveat I'll say is we don't know what's a major question. So the industry is not guaranteed to win because the court has, you know, left, you know, as some uh, scholars have said, the court makes sure that the only party that always wins is the court because it gets to decide. But yeah, they certainly invited industry, right? They've issued, in a sense, the invitation, create controversy, stir it up. Um, you get controversy and then you might find innate get a court to say the government can't regulate it. We have been speaking with Professor Wendy Parmet, law professor at Northeastern University School of Law, member of the Board of Directors of Health Law Advocates and Healthcare for All. Her new book is titled Constitutional Contagion, COVID, the Courts, and Public Health. We urge you to buy it and read it. Buy it through your local independent bookstore. Professor, thank you so much for your book. Thank you for your time and insights We and your time. We appreciate all of that in you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Stone Soup Farm in Hadley is suffering significant damages from the flooding. Eight acres of vegetables that were intended for the community-supported agriculture summer shares will have to be plowed under after being deluged by the rain from the Connecticut River this week. 
Owner Dave DeLorenzo tells the Gazette that thousands of pounds of various vegetables and 30,000 heads of garlic were destroyed. DeLorenzo plans to put together a GoFundMe page to help with the damage. A link to other farms with GoFundMe pages already set up can be found at whmp.com. The owner of Brunel's Marina has died. 61-year-old Luke Brunel passed away on Thursday. Brunel's Marina was started in 1959 by Brunel's father and grandfather. The family released a statement saying Brunel was respected and admired for his dedication to exceptional service and fostering a welcoming environment for boating enthusiasts. The cause of death was not disclosed. Multiple crews were sent to Brattleboro Road in Bernardston on Friday for a single-vehicle rollover crash. The accident occurred at approximately 10.30 p.m. A person was trapped in the vehicle that hit a utility pole on Brattleboro Road, Route 5, at Keatsbrook Road near the Vermont border. The driver was found in the rear of the vehicle and sent to a local hospital for injuries. A Bernardston police officer was also cut on glass while removing the driver from the vehicle. Bernardston police are investigating the accident and criminal charges are likely. Becoming mostly sunny today, warm and humid, a high of 88 to 92. Variable clouds tonight. Evening temperatures will be in the low 80s, an overnight low of 66 to 72. Sun cloud mix tomorrow. Watch out. More showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon, a high of 84 to 88. Dry mid-80s on Wednesday. I'm 22 News Storm TV meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information and the Arts. Got chronic joint pain? Not having success with steroids, but trying to avoid surgery? Well, thankfully, there's a better way, and now it's available here from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics. I'm talking about new, advanced regenerative medicine treatments that can restore and repair damaged tissue in your bad joints, providing lasting relief with no drugs, no surgery, and no downtime. This is an all-natural way to use highly concentrated healing properties from your own body to give you lasting relief. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in precision regenerative medicine medicine with over 100 clinics across America and literally thousands of satisfied patients. If you've got joint pain due to arthritis, knee pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, don't just think the old ways of dealing with pain are the only ways. You need to learn more about these new regenerative options that can change your life. Call QC Kinetics now. It's a free consultation with local medical professionals. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Let's recap how many ways Franklin First Federal Credit Union makes life simpler for you. Checking accounts? It's totally free. Plus, we have teen and senior checking options. Savings? Think traditional. Plus, HSAs, money markets, club accounts, and CDs. Convenience? How about direct deposit? Real-time payment? Overdraft protection? Free online banking and mobile deposits. Life simplified. Visit franklinfirst.org and learn more. franklinfirst.org, Franklin First Federal Credit Union, member NCUA. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. It is Monday, and that's the time for us to all celebrate the written word with yes. our 
our conductor of our orchestra, <laughs> Megan me. Zinn. Hello, That's Megan. Me. Hi. Um, my guest today is, I'm very excited to speak with um, Chloe Gong. Uh, Chloe is the author of the critically acclaimed Secret Shanghai novels, as well as the Flesh and False Gods trilogy. And her new novel, Immortal Longings, comes out tomorrow. Yay. Uh, Chloe will be reading from Immortal Longings on Wednesday, this Wednesday, July 19th at 7 p.m. at Center Church, or the, which is the First Congregational Church in South Hadley. And its event is sponsored, of course, by Odyssey Books. Um, and this is a ticketed event. So the price of your ticket includes a hardcover copy of Immortal Longings. Um, and you can find more on the website um, of Odyssey Books, odysseybks.com. Welcome, Chloe. Hello. So excited to be here. Now, the, your, your stop at um, Odyssey Books on Wednesday night mm -hmm. is your only New England stop on your tour. How did we get so lucky? Well, you know, Odyssey Books is just so amazing that we were like, here we are. Now we're, we're going there. Yeah, they do. They have such a robust um, uh, slate of authors who come to their store. It's really fantastic. Oh, um, so well, tell us about, about um, your new novel, Immortal Longings. Mm -hmm. Immortal Longings is my first adult debut. So every book I've put out before then has been for the young adult audience, but this is my first adult novel. Uh, it is a first in a trilogy and it's inspired by Antony and Cleopatra mm -hmm. set in a world where people can change bodies as easily as you can change clothing. And it follows an, a, a criminal princess who enrolls in a game to the death because she's trying to kill her uncle and bring down the monarchy. That's the elevator pitch. Excellent, excellent. Um, can you read, read a selection for us? I can. I'm going to read the first paragraph. Okay, just for a little, a little taste to it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Chapter one. A living thing, when faced with a break or injury, is compelled to heal itself. A cut will clot with blood, trapping in a person's chi. A bone will smooth over, knitting new threads at every split. And San Ara's buildings, when an inconvenience is identified, will rush to mend the sore, pinpointing every fracture and hurling remedies with vigor. From the top of the palace, all that can be seen are the stacked structures composing the Twin Cities, interlocked and dependent upon one another, some attached to a neighbor from the ground level and others connected only at the highest floors. Everyone in the Kingdom of Town wants to be in its capital, and these two cities masquerading as one, and so St. R must grow denser and higher to accommodate covering up its offenses and stenches with utter incoherence. Lovely. Thank you. Um, and my guest is Chloe Gong, who's just reading the first paragraph of uh, her new book, Immortal Longings. So tell us what sparked the idea for this book. Mm -hmm. I wrote Immortal Longings in my senior year of college. And that was when we were <laughs> going through the COVID quarantines. Ah, yes. um, I had been kicked back to New Zealand for junior year when COVID oh, first broke really? out. Oh, jeez. Yeah, every international student went home, so yeah. I was in New Zealand doing school over Zoom, which, as you can imagine, with a 16-hour time difference was very bad. <laughs> very tough. Very, very rough. I just did not go to any class, mm -hmm. understandably. My mm -hmm. professors all gave me the out for that. Um, but senior year, I came back to campus because I thought, even if we're doing school online, I still need to be in the right time zone for that. Yeah. It also meant when it was winter break, when it was any holiday, I was just left alone on campus because every other person was going home to their families in right. the States. But I was like, I can't fly back you to New Zealand. Go for yeah, New Zealand's going to a hike. <laughs> um, so that was when the idea emerged. It was kind of this um, 
you know, the city came to me first, this dense place where people are practically living on top of each other mm -hmm. because there are just so many lives and not enough space. Yeah. I was thinking about this while I was in isolation mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. for whatever reason, my brain jumped to the complete opposite. Right. Uh, and once I had the setting, I also thought I'm going to merge this with an Antony and Cleopatra retelling because I had debuted into young adult with Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. And, you know, as an English Perfect. major nerd, it just feels very meta <laughs> yes. to kind of compare these two together. Yes. One is just so adult about mm -hmm. power and mm -hmm. obsession. And for teenagers, Romeo and Juliet is so much about youth yeah. and all of those themes. Fascinating. Um, and um, so my guest is writer Chloe Gong. So you wrote your first published novel when you were in college, but when did you start writing? I started writing when I was about 13-ish in high school. Um, but back then, I didn't think of it as something I would ever pursue as a career. It was such it was such a fun hobby mm -hmm. that I treated it as relaxing time. So I would finish my homework at school. I would finish everything that I, that I needed to do. And I would be like, oh, I have nothing now to do. What am I going to spend time on? And it was writing. Like, creating a book every year was just my idea of fun. Oh, and it wasn't until I actually got to college mm -hmm. and I was getting older that I thought, actually, you know, maybe some of these things that I write is publishable. Mm -hmm. Maybe I could mm -hmm. actually put it on shelves and have other people read it. And that eventually became my um, debut young adult novel. All right. And... um. Are you still, as a, as a published writer who's published several books already, um, are you still finding it fun? Is it still <laughs> as fun as it was when you were 13? <laughs> to, to an extent. Um, oh, good. I still love doing it so much. But I think once you are published, you begin to think of it as a job. Mm -hmm. You know, every new book I write now, I'm like, this is how I pay rent. Mm -hmm. I have to, you know, treat it as something worthy of, like, professional pursuit. Um, so it does lose that kind of like whimsicalness that when I was 13 writing a book, I could put anything I wanted in there. I could write it a thousand pages long and it wouldn't matter. Uh, but now, you know, there is that element of is this something that could be on the shelves that people will enjoy? Um, but of course, you know, I still have to love doing it first and foremost. Otherwise, the creative energy would dissipate. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Um, did you, you know, did moving to the U.S. from New Zealand for college sort of change your writing or how you wrote very often? Um, my guest is Chloe Gong and I'm asking her about her, her writing career, which started very young. Um, but did it change um, the way you wrote? Very often, I think when people, um, you know, that big culture shift can really affect their creativity. Did you have that happen to you? Mm -hmm. That is a great question um, because I feel like it, it didn't influence me too much, but it did give me a bit more insight into what I think the largest market was, right? Ah, mm -hmm. I think there, there's an understanding in publishing that the American market is where all the people are. It's probably where you want to hit if you want your work to be seen um, you know, by as many people as possible. But <laughs> when I was 13 writing my first book, and I had never set foot in the States before, mm -hmm. and yet my book was set in the United States. It was set in Connecticut. <laughs> I don't even think I knew where Connecticut was Excellent. on the map. <laughs> um, but I think it's because, you know, American media is mm -hmm. very, very big in other English speaking parts of the world, especially in New Zealand. I had such a familiarity with how American high school worked, with how American college worked, that it kind of just bled into my work. Uh, I think now actually being here, mm. there's obviously more authenticity yeah. in anything that I try to portray that is American. <laughs> Yeah, probably a lot more nuance, um, yeah. But otherwise, 
yeah otherwise i've always been gravitating around that <laughs> that portrayal that's interesting uh, so my guest is chloe gong and we're speaking about her new book um immortal longings and um we'll we'll go into a break um and chloe will be um appearing at odyssey bookshop and we'll give you more details after the break I was young and an actress When you knelt by my mattress And asked for my hand I was sad This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Power to the people Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. For complete contest rules for WHMP, please visit WHMP's website at whmp.com and click on the Contest and Rules tab. Using WIC is easier than ever. You can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. Visit us at mass.gov WIC, brought to you by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health's WIC Nutrition Program. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And Megan's in. And Megan's in. Well, I'm here talking with Chloe Gong, um, the author of uh, the new novel, Immortal Longings, which comes out tomorrow. And Chloe will be reading from Immortal Longings on Wednesday night, July, July 19th at 7 p.m. at the Center Church, First Congregational Church in South Hadley. The event is sponsored by Odyssey Books, and it's a ticketed event. The price of your ticket includes a hardcover copy of Immortal Longings, and you can find more on the Odyssey website, odysseybks. Com. Um, I was going to, there's a great um, blurb quote on the back of your book um, from the author Rebecca Roanhorse, which is a great name herself, um, a, um, a New York Times bestselling author. And she says, Gong's first venture into adult fantasy set in a claustrophobic, low-tech city where life is cheap and bodies are disposable, features wonderfully complex characters, and a game to the death that is ex executed with aplomb. And then she goes on to say, Immortal Longings is a lot of fun. Um, so <laughs> tell us a bit about how you create that balance of this very intense, mm -hmm. difficult world and a fun book. Mm -hmm. 
I love genre mashing first and foremost, I think. And there's very little I will write where it is just strictly serious or strictly fun. Everything I create has to have some sort of blend to it. Um, so I really, really love Rebecca's blurb because I think it just gets to the very essence of what I was trying to do. There's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of critique about the political system that created the world of immortal longings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But at the same time, you also want to care about these characters and follow them wherever they're going. They're just trying to survive. There are a lot of jokes thrown in here and there. Um, and at the end of it, it does feel a little Shakespearean because I mm -hmm. think Shakespeare was you know, writing some very, very good work. And he also threw some dirty jokes in yeah. every few lines. Yeah. And that what makes <laughs> this tragedy, you know, so fun, mm -hmm. fun, but but watchable because they always have mm -hmm. those the, that, that comic relief. I've heard him re referred to as the bod instead of the bard. <laughs> yes, he does get, he's got excellent dirty jokes that most, that half of us probably don't even get half the time. Mm -hmm. Um so you had a, uh, I was looking through your TikTok, and you had a hilarious TikTok where you noted that at a book festival, you you were eavesdropping at the next table's <laughs> intensive publishing gossip because, quote, um, you look like an unsupervised teenager instead of another author. So what are some of the other benefits of being a relatively young author in this, in this industry? The thing that I love is that I, I feel like I have a really strong connection to my readers. Oh, yeah. Um, especially when I was writing, you know, young adult books, because first and foremost, it felt as though I was just a part of the audience that I was writing for. Mm -hmm. um, there was never any doubt of like, oh, what are teenagers reading these days? Like, I knew. <laughs> yep. I was one. Yep. Um, so it really gives me that, uh, that built-in market research, mm -hmm. I think. Yes. Um, uh, but, you know, eavesdropping at festivals because I look like an unsupervised teenager is also a lot of fun. <laughs> That's wonderful. So, so what? Uh, oh, Dan has a question. I do have a question. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that this was your first novel for uh, adults and not mm -hmm. young, young adults. How did you change in your writing process for that? How did you mm -hmm. adapt to that? Mm -hmm. Oh, great question. I didn't so much change my craft work. Like, on a prose level, everything still relatively, you know, maintained the exact same style as for teenagers. But once I was writing for adults, it was the tone that shifted mm -hmm. more than anything. I kind of think of adult books as, you know, capturing the full range of what growing into like experiencing adulthood feels like. Things are never really straight cut. There's never really one path forward. Whereas my young adult books tend to follow a more linear path because it's trying to capture a coming of age experience. You kind of feel as though there is an answer at the end of everything, which eventually when you become an adult, you know, that's not true. Yeah. But I think a lot of teenagers want to believe if I just do this right. I'm going to be able to follow one path forward into adulthood. Um, and that kind of captures the tone of it. As soon as I head into Immortal Longings and I'm writing for adults, it just goes everywhere everything is chaos yeah <laughs> what made you decide to take the leap at this point from from young adult to adult mm -hmm. i think because i was aging mm -hmm. into an adult um i had started in young adult because it was all i knew it was the only sort of books that i read because just as a 17 year old i wasn't really interested in adult books but then uh i, I started writing mortal longings at 21 meaning i was I had been reading adult fantasy and adult books for a few years at that point, and it was just very interesting to me. And the time, like at the point that I got the idea for the city and for that setting, 
it just came to me as an adult idea. And, you know, I think I'm going to be writing both young adult and adult mm-hmm. for a very long time because I'm never really going to let go of the kind of teenage sort of very fun. But I also have a lot of adult ideas I want to be exploring. Yeah. Your young adult fans, I'm sure, will be very happy to know that, that, they, that they'll still get some books <laughs> in the future. Um, and your yeah. adult fans are going to be happy to have, to have both, probably, because so many adults read young adult, adult these days anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the writers yeah. that have influenced you, both, both the, um, you know, the, writer, the um, people who are writing young adult and um, mm-hmm. what writers, uh, young adult writers, um, have you mm-hmm. been influenced by and enjoy, and also the adult writers that you started reading? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my um, young adult influences are the authors that I grew up on, which is crazy now because it's like they're my colleagues. And every time <laughs> I see them like around, I'm like, oh, my God, hi. <laughs> and they're just like, oh, hey, Chloe. And inside, I'm like, oh, my God. Fangirling out. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, the, the greats in YA, Cassandra Clare, Lainey Taylor, Maggie Stevader, I grew up on their series and so much of their like young adult stone top like you know style of how they depict like the teenage years have influenced me so much mm-hmm. and a lot of the adult writers that i'm such big fans of are the ones that i kind of came into the industry with and i was picking up their books because i they sounded so fascinating like um tasha suri who's one of my agent siblings mm-hmm. her like jasmine throne series the best fantasy like i've read in my life and then sometimes i'm like wow i can't believe i get to like write with these authors like in this contemporary time it's it's amazing yeah they get to be your colleagues um and um so i'm speaking with chloe gong whose new book immortal longings is out tomorrow and she's appearing at um odyssey bookshop um on wednesday night at seven o'clock it's actually not at the bookshop it's at the center church first congregational church because <laughs> the bookstop the bookstore is too small um and the um the event um the t- there's a, t- a ticketed event and the price includes a, c- a hardcover copy of immortal longings how do people get tickets they um there's a link on the um odyssey bookshop site too i believe in the eventbrite mm-hmm. site yeah. Um, so, Chloe, before we before we finish up, just tell me, can you tell us what you're working on now? Um, mm-hmm. I'm working on the sequel okay. to Immortal Longings. I'm slowly cracking away at it. Um, I, I do this thing where I work on different things at once as well. So mm-hmm. I'm also working on my next young adult, hopefully oh, a sci-fi, but oh, cool. I'll work that out as it grows into a real book. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So again, my guest has been Chloe Gong, and um, she is going to be at well, not at Odyssey Books, at the um, at <laughs> the uh, the uh, Center Church First Congregational Church in South Hadley on Wednesday night. Bill, It'll be a book reading. It will be uh, a reading, I assume, and and a Q and A. It'll be in conversation. Yes, wonderful. and a signing. And a signing, of course. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being with us, and good luck with the launch of the book and the so um, the, the tour. Thank you so much. And where do you go from South Hadley? I go to St. Louis. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. New York, St. Louis, South Hadley. I got it. Yes. Yes. It makes perfect sense. (laughs) But you'll be leaving the center of the universe in South Hadley. You understand that, right? (laughs) Well, it was really a pleasure, and good good luck with the book. It really sounds fascinating, and uh, I love anybody who could make um, death and destruction into a fun read. (laughs) <laughs> you're a very I talented hope so. author uh, yeah. I hope it's a- All right. Well, wonderful. and listeners thank you so much for joining us Megan thank you and for the rest of us we will not only talk the talk we will walk the walk
The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Bacon Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Bacon's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org.